Our text for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. It's a a very familiar parable, the parable of the talents. As it is Stewardship Sunday, I'm thrilled, obviously. Usually this parable is used to illustrate uh, sound financial planning, investment, and there are certainly lessons here, I think, about stewardship. There's certainly things to think about when it comes to our finances. But there's something a lot more than that here. Uh, All of the parables that Jesus tell are used to describe the kingdom of God. And so there is something here beyond a financial lesson for each of us today. There is a message um, of grace, of mercy for the weary and for the needy in, in all of us. So with that in mind, I invite you to listen for the word of the Lord to you this morning. And this is Jesus speaking. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. At once the one who had received the five talents went off and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter. Then you ought to invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God, may my words be your words. May all of our thoughts be your thoughts, our strength and our deliverer. Amen. Well, I know you all came this morning to hear my reflections on weeping and gnashing of teeth. What could be more appropriate for Thanksgiving? So here goes. I'm just kidding. Everybody, relax. Many of you are familiar with the name N.T. Wright. Uh, He's a popular scholar and a historian who has written extensively about Christianity. For those of you who don't know, uh, he writes, you know, feels like a 500-page book a year. But before he became N.T. Wright, he was a chaplain 
uh, at a college in Oxford. And each day he used to meet with first-year undergrads individually to welcome them to campus, to introduce himself. Um, and he recalls that every single year what would happen is that they would be very polite to him. They were glad to meet him. They would say to him, though, you're not going to be seeing very much of me. Uh, I don't believe in God, they would tell him, which is how you know this is a true story because that is the most on-brand thing a freshman in college would say when meeting with the chaplain. But Wright would respond. He would say, oh, that's interesting. Which God is it that you don't believe in? Which is a great response. It's a great question. He says it used to surprise them. And uh, after they gathered their wits, they would uh, end up saying something like uh, this being who lived up in the sky, looking down disapprovingly at the world, occasionally intervening, but mostly uh, sending bad people to hell while allowing the good ones uh, to share his heaven. And again, much to the surprise of these students, Wright would respond to them by saying, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either. I believe in the God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. And why do I tell you this story? Well, Wright's point is that what we decide about who God is and how we relate to this God has tremendous power over our lives. It even affects whether or not we say we believe in God at all. And I think that this is precisely the point of the parable that I've just read for us this morning. It is a parable about our perception of God, of God's character, of who this God is, and how we relate to this God. So let's review. Jesus tells a story about a wealthy man who entrusts his assets to three servants. Uh, we're told that he gives one servant five talents, another servant two, and a third he gives one talent to. Uh, in our world, a talent is a skill, uh, an ability. Some of us have a lot of them. I was given the short end of that stick. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. A talent was the value of about 15 to 20 years wages. Uh, so we're talking about a lot of money here. And uh, if you were in the crowd that day when Jesus tells this story, you would have been kind of shocked. You would have been surprised. You know, what, what master would leave that kind of cash in the care of his servants? You would have thought it was ridiculous. So the first two servants, they basically do the same thing. We're told that they soon went away as quickly as they could, and they doubled their money fast. Now, I have a few degrees, uh, all in religion, uh, zero, absolutely zero in finance or economics, so I want you to take this with a grain of salt here. Uh, but to, in order for them to double their money, they would have had to take on significant risk, especially to do it in as short of a time as they did. And in order to take on that kind of risk, you've got to be a fairly bold person. You have to be risky, uh, not afraid of it. But you also have to have a kind of freedom, a freedom to fail and to pick yourself up again. But in the end, we're told that this risk, this move that they made, it paid off. And when the master returned, he was pleased. He rewarded them. And on the other hand, we have this third servant. This third servant buries his talent in the ground. And when the master returns, we discover why. He tells him, I knew you were a harsh man, and so I was afraid. I knew you were a harsh man. Now, maybe you have known a harsh person uh, in your life. Maybe you've had a harsh boss before. Maybe you've had a harsh coach or maybe even a harsh parent, someone for whom uh, it seems everything that you do is never enough. 
And you know that sometimes it's easier to just do nothing at all than it is to risk doing anything and risk that disappointment. A recent New Yorker cartoon depicted an adult woman sitting on a, a therapist's couch, uh, and she says uh, this, first I did things for my parents' approval, and then I did things for my parents' disapproval. Now I don't know why I do things. I thought that my six-year-old would do things for my approval maybe just a little bit longer. <laughs> I think that ship has sailed, but can you relate? Can you relate? Approval um, is something we seek for most of our lives. First, it begins with our family, our parents, maybe friends, teachers, coaches. But then it's something we're just constantly looking for from everyone that we meet, approval. And immobilized by fear of his master's disapproval, the servant buries this money to avoid uh, any risk at all of losing it. And the point here for you and for me is that if you believe God to be a harsh man, if that's your perception of God, then you live with this burden to be perfect. Uh, it's a view of God without mercy, a view of God without grace, a view of God without forgiveness. And the result is that you live worried. You just live worried about ever being good enough. Uh, you're always kind of afraid that the other shoe is going to drop in your life. And you are afraid to take risks. You're afraid maybe to take uh, form relationships. You're afraid to be vulnerable. I know for some people, they're afraid after being away from church for a while to even come back into church, to even pick up their faith again, because they're worried that God will only judge them, that God is a harsh man. And I think that this parable is saying that is no way to live your life. And thankfully, there is another way to live. Jesus says... If you would like not to be afraid all of the time, then think of God as a generous boss who gives you the promotion when you know you don't deserve it. Think of God as one who gives gifts to people who haven't earned them yet. You might say that the two-word summary of the gospel is God approves. That's the two-word summary of the gospel. God approves. That's what grace is. It is a ridiculous, preposterous gift. And one of the signs that you have grasped how ridiculous this gift is is that you take a hold of it and you live generously in response. You take what's been given to you and you just try to create more of that in the world around you. So my question that I want to leave you with today, that I want you asking all week long, especially as we enter into the season of gratitude, is what would it mean? What would it actually mean for you and for me if we lived as if we believed God to be gracious to us? And I'm going to let you answer that question on your own, but I have a hunch that it would lead to a kind of joyful, unafraid, and generous life. And not just as individuals, but as a church. Right? Think with me, imagine with me for a minute. What if First Church believed God to be as gracious as the God who gives talents willy-nilly away to people who don't deserve them. How would we live in response? A few years ago, uh, the church I served in Austin uh, had a significant surplus at the end of the, uh, of the year, about a million dollars. And our session designated a tenth of that, about $100,000, to just give away to mission. And so they approached the mission committee and said, this is yours to spend, do, whatever with, do what you want with it. And my friend uh, Whitney was the mission director at the time, and she had recently learned about the, the increase, the rise in medical debt 
and the burden that it was becoming to many people uh, in our country. Uh, so she asked the mission committee to partner with this organization called RIP Medical Debt. Maybe you've heard of, of this organization. Uh, it purchases uh, uh, debt uh, at a fraction of the cost, and then it just forgives it. Right? This is their, their whole mission. And according to their research, two-thirds of bankruptcies in this country uh, cite medical debt as a leading cause. Right? So it's a significant burden on people in our country. And so they use their data. They pinpoint the people who are most in need, uh, and then they purchase this debt, and they, they just forgive it. And the people whose debt is forgiven, they receive a letter in the mail that says, your debt has been paid. No tax penalties, no consequences. You're just free, forgiven. It's an incredible, incredible organization. So our mission committee just decided to give all $100,000 to this organization. And they were told that this would possibly cover up to $10 million worth of debt in the, in the county, uh, which is an incredible thing. But it ended up being closer to $16 million, And it covered all of the debt in Central Texas, from Austin all the way to San Antonio. It's an incredible story, but here's the thing. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. Session could have buried that talent in the ground, right? They could have buried that talent in the endowment. Not that the endowment's the ground, but go with me here, right? Give away 100 grand in this economy? Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? They could have tucked it away for a rainy day, and there might be some at Covenant, uh, who think that that was the right thing to do, maybe to bury it away. There might be some in this audience that think, you know, that's actually the wise play here. It was a risky move, a bold move. But I'll tell you that it made more than a, of an impact on more people than just those whose debt was forgiven. The city of Austin took notice. People started to think, what is the good that a church can do in the world? They started to imagine what would it be like in this city if this church didn't exist? Which is a thing that we want people outside of these walls wondering about. Is this community good for the North Shore? Is it good for Chicagoland? Is it good for Lake Forest? But it went deeper than that. It was as, as if a light bulb went off for members of our congregation. It was as if for the first time they saw concretely what it looks like for grace to play out in practice in the world. And I can tell you all this, I can brag about this, because even though I was on staff there, I had nothing to do with it, right? People rarely listen to pastors anyways. Um, so I had nothing to do with it. They did this all on their own. I was like everybody else, just in awe of it. Well, over the last few weeks, I've, I've been learning as much as I can about First Church. I've been meeting as many of you as I possibly can. There's been a few welcome gatherings. I've enjoyed them. At each of these gatherings, I've asked a series of four questions. The first of those questions is, I, wanna, I want you to tell me something unique about this place. Tell me what is unique about First Church. And overwhelmingly, the response to that question has had something to do with the history of this church. Maybe the windows, the campus, uh, the 160 years of, of people who have been here. And it's a great response. It tells me something, that there's something to preserve here. Uh, there is uh, a rich history uh, of, of people who have been blessed generationally here. And they have acted on that blessing in care and compassion, conviction. And all of that is amazing. It's an amazing thing to inherit as a pastor. But today is a significant day in the life of our church because we get to decide together, here and now, this community that occupies this corner in this time and place, we get to decide that we have a future too. And more importantly, we get to decide what kind of future that's going to be. Will we take the talents that God has given to us? Will we bury them in the ground? 
Will we live out of scarcity and fear? Or will we take some bold moves? Will we take some risks? Will we step out in faith? Believing God not to be a harsh man, but to be a generous, gracious God who always has more to give and isn't stingy with the people who know what to do with that blessing. That's the decision that we get to make today. And I'll say one more thing and then I'm finished. If you're paying attention to the world right now, imagine that you're feeling kind of overwhelmed, right? Take your pick. There's war and violence in the Middle East. There's political tribalism, culture wars here in our own communities. Uh, there is the decline of religious faith. There's the rise of loneliness. There's uh, the mental health of our teenagers. All things that we should be concerned about. And this is the world that we live in. And we shouldn't look away from it. Nor should we. Because, and hear me on this, this is our moment. The church of Jesus Christ was built for moments like this. I believe this in my soul. That the darker it appears, the nastier the culture gets. The more confusing it is, the lonelier people become. That's our moment as a church. It's our moment. And God has called us for this moment. And what the world needs, what Lake Forest and beyond needs, is for each of us, for you and for me, to take this generous gift of grace that God has given to us and to make more of it and to make more of it and to make more of it. I want you to notice that the judgment the master makes on the unfaithful servant is not because he didn't double his money. You get the sense that even if, even if that third servant had took a risk and lost it, he would have been in a better position. So it's not that he judged him because he didn't double his money. He judged him because he didn't do anything. It's a small, but it's a very crucial detail in this story. In the game of grace... All that matters is that you play. God isn't keeping the score. God just wants you to play. And apparently, you can make much of the grace that God has given you or just even a little bit. And you're even allowed every once in a while to take a risk. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.